But first, we start the show today with federal NDP leader Jugmeet Singh promising to cancel student loan debt. Let's check in now with Peter Julian, NDP MP for New Westminster. I'm very pleased to welcome him back to the show. Peter, thanks a lot for coming on. Oh, great to be back with you, Mike. Okay, let's have a little listen to your leader here, Jugmeet Singh, here talking about student debt. Here he is. We need to really help out students and graduates by loan forgiveness, debt forgiveness. And so we are proud to announce today that we will, as a new Democrat government, cancel up to $20,000 in federal loan student debt. Whoa. Okay. Where was this guy when I needed him, when I had all that debt? Okay. Peter Julian, can you tell me how this is going to work? Uh, Well, basically, uh, the, the first thing, because students have been really hard hit by this pandemic, is to put a moratorium on student loan payments uh, right through the pandemic. We, we know that students are struggling uh, to, to pay their loans, and it doesn't make sense that you're <laughs> having to pay off a student loan as you're struggling to put food on the table to get through the pandemic. And then, uh, not all not all with, student not all students are struggling to put food on the table, though, right? Like you're saying, like every single student out there would they wouldn't have to pay their loans anymore, at least during I'm, the pandemic. I, I'm saying that they're not making, we, well, the federal government actually started out the, the uh, pandemic by putting a moratorium on student loans. The, yeah. the, the people that are undertaking the loans are the ones that are struggling the most. So is it every student? Of course not, but uh, a lot of them are, and I, I'm certainly right. hearing from them in my writing. Okay. Uh, and what we would do uh, after a five-year uh, uh, period after graduation is uh, forgive the first $20,000 of student debt for for students who are earning a hundred under a hundred thousand dollars a year in family income. So this is what helps people uh, bridge through from from their studies uh, to employment and hopefully uh, um, starting a family. All of those things that uh, often are delayed because of the incredibly high levels of student debt that students are are we're living with even before the pandemic. That's been compounded so that by was, the pandemic. Okay, so that would be a 20000 just straight write-off, like money that you've borrowed for your education, $20,000, you write it off, you don't have to pay it back. Yes, yeah. Wow. And uh, as well, as you probably know, Mike, uh, we, we have dozens of, of countries that have uh, free post-secondary education, whether we're yeah. talking about France and Germany, Scandinavian countries, right around the world. Canada is one uh, an, an anomaly and that it imposes a huge debt burden on students that are trying to contribute to the Canadian economy, trying to get skills for the workplace. It doesn't make sense to saddle them with a huge debt load that the federal government profits off of. Uh, the interest payments to the federal government are nearly a billion dollars a year. It doesn't make a lot of sense when you think of the importance of higher education. Okay, speaking to NDP MP Peter Julian about the party's promise to cancel student loan debt, all right, so Peter, let me put this to you. I, like, if I look back at my own life when I got out of high school and, and went to university, my parents did not have a lot of money, to say the least. Okay, like there there was nothing. So I went out and got some student loans, and I remember it took me years to pay those loans off, and it was it was a pain. Like every time I looked at that bank balance, I was like, damn. This is this is going to take me years, and it did. It took me a long, long time to pay those loans off. But you know what? I did it, you know, and I, I went out and got a job. I remember the, one of the first jobs I had was working in a pizza parlor washing dishes. It worked my ass off. Terrible. But I did it, making minimum wage, and I, and I paid it off. And I, I think it actually taught me a little bit of discipline about money. 
So, I mean, like, what kind of message are you going to send to young people out there to say, it's okay, you know, you've borrowed all this money, it's okay, you don't have to pay it back? Uh, well, first off, Mike, I went through it as well. I paid off a $40,000 yeah. student uh, student debt, and it took me years to pay off as well. Well, and you came, and you came out of it okay? Um, well, uh, it, you, you, you work hard and you pay, pay it down. But right, right. why do other countries actually offer a free post-secondary education? Why do they not saddle? their students with this level of debt. And if, if what we're talking about is uh, discipline, it, then the issue of where we are putting our money right now as a federal government comes to play. And uh, as I've mentioned in this show before, parliamentary budgetary officer says we lose $25 billion a year in tax money to overseas tax havens. So it's a question of wow. investing in students so that uh, they are actually able to, to move after they've gotten their studies, contributing to the economy, contributing to uh, to the, the the welfare of in, often in cases of creating new jobs uh, as entrepreneurs because they've gained these new skills uh, and we're saddling them with an excessive level of debt okay. that's often the size of a mortgage. It doesn't make a lot of sense, and that's why other countries don't do it. Okay, and, but and Canada what, needs to move in a direction that makes more sense. Okay, but you know, speaking of saddling with debt, I mean, if we take a look at the debt of Canada, which just hit a trillion dollars, we've got a federal government here that's racking up deficits like there's no tomorrow, $300 billion deficit. We haven't had a budget for two years. You got a Trudeau government said he's going to keep spending, stimulus spending, even when the pandemic is over, another $300 billion set to go out the door. I mean, I mean where, do, where does it end? You know, at, uh, at some point, like at some point, yeah. at some point, do we just say to ourselves, like, this is not sustainable? And now you it's, guys want it, you guys want to pile on even more. It's not sustainable to give billions of dollars to very profitable corporations that pay it out in dividends. That's what the Trudeau government's done. It's not sustainable to give twenty five billion dollars to overseas tax havens. The banking sector got seven hundred fifty well, billion dollars in liquidity support. So where do you draw the line? Well, why, how is that on the well, cats, the folks that have been taking money from the federal government when it just goes to pad their bottom bottom line. Okay, like I'm not against I'm, I'm not against going after like white collar criminals who are hiding their filthy money in offshore bank accounts or whatever. Like absolutely they should go after these people and crack down on them, but I don't think that's a like a valid argument to say that well just because we've got people who are stashing money away in offshore bank accounts we should give free money to everybody every student across all these students across Canada like how does that how does that add up uh, well, like you're saying like one what two wrongs make a right like i'm 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 suggesting it's not a wrong at all to support our students to support yeah. post secondary education to support new skills that are actually going to create jobs in our economy that that's not a wrong that's very much a right and yeah. the, the problem we've had is we've been saddling students, and I'm, I meet tons of people in my riding, young people that have great skills and abilities, but they, they say they won't be able to go on to college or university because they simply can't saddle the excessive levels of debt right. that come with it. So what we're doing is we're basically um, cutting off our nose to spite our face by saying, well, students, we're going to impose a bigger and bigger debt burden on you. We're not going to help you out. And if you, you can't go to post-secondary school, uh, studies and you can't learn those new skills well um that's that's a consequence we're okay. willing to live with we we believe in investing in those skills for tomorrow and it actually yeah. helps our economy helps job creation and it helps with a whole variety of sectors for example healthcare, where we have a shortage of trained personnel okay how much would this cost this program 
four and a half billion in the first year oh, and one and a half billion for each year afterwards. Well, compare that, to 25, compare that to 25 billion in offshore tax savings, 750 yeah. billion for the banking sector. I mean, uh, we've, we've lost more than that just to companies that have used the, the benefits from uh, through the pandemic for dividends and executive bonuses. Okay, so, so where do you get an investment that makes sense? For so where do you get where do you get the four and a half billion? Borrow it, right? Like more debt. Uh, well, we we have said that we believe in putting in place a wealth tax, like other countries yeah. have, so that the billionaires that have really benefited from this pandemic, tens of billions of dollars in new wealth, actually pay their fair share of taxes. Uh, the wealth tax would bring in uh, far more than this particular measure. And what this measure does is cut student debt uh, over the okay. next decade in, in half right across the country, which means more, more st- students will be able to go on and learn the skills that will right. help us in, in our healthcare sector in, and in a whole range of uh, job creation right across the country. Okay, it's an interesting idea. You certainly got people talking about it today. And I, uh, Peter, Julian, I want to thank you for coming on the show. Thanks for coming on. Always a pleasure, Mike. I okay. appreciate talking with you. Thanks so much. Th- th- thank you. Peter, Julian, NDP MP for New Westminster, talking about the NDP promise to cancel student loan debt. All right, welcome back to the show. Time to talk to former BC Green Party leader Andrew Weaver now about cycling and bike lanes. I'm very pleased to welcome him back to the show. Andrew, thank you for coming on. Well, thank you for having me, Mike. Okay, Andrew, you got everybody in the cycling community upset with your attacks on bike lanes on social media. As I'm taking a look at your your Twitter feed here, and this I'm going to read one out here. It's funny to watch the Vancouver and Victoria biking cartel spin out of control in a shotgun mob swarm just because someone dares to suggest bike lanes make no make no sense and will increase traffic past two elementary schools in a kid's park andrew weaver your former leader of the green party you're going after bike lanes what's up with that actually it's not about bike lanes i I don't think that was actually exactly what I said. What I did say is what made no sense is the what we have in Victoria, and obviously it's applicable to Vancouver too, is we have a, a plan that's been decided, and anyone who dares question that plan for not a bike lane, this is the irony here, it's about closing uh, a street junction, Richardson and Fowl Bay in Victoria, that is main access for a lot of people in South Oak Bay to Victoria. Um, not to create bike lanes, but in actually to create a you know bike way where they basically block traffic and still everyone's sharing the same road. There's no bike lanes involved. Yeah, so you're, you're concerned. So you're not against... You're not traffic a- beside schools. No, no, actually, I, I've always argued that what we need is proper integrated active transportation. Right. But the, the, what's, what's very most unfortunate, Mike, is that um, with, with many in this community, you simply cannot have an opinion because if you raise an opinion, you're suddenly demonized as you know satan reincarnated because somehow you dare challenge the the high priests of this uh, kind of uh, 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 cult uh, which i was waiting for you to say it i was waiting for you to say it to say the to say oh. the cult word you call them a cult why do you call them a cult 
Well, I, I tried to build it in terms of a metaphor, and I don't know that it was very good, is that I felt as somebody who spent my entire life on the issue of climate uh, change mitigation and concern about greenhouse gas reduction, and, and actually, you know, stood forward and, and got into a provincial politics as a direct attempt to try to bring back a climate plan in British Columbia, because we've moved away. And when I see people uh, in the community that um, are essentially trying to justify the, in, uh, the indefensible, uh, by evoking climate change, it really does bother me because it, what it does is it sends a signal to broader society that everything is everything around is somehow the fault of climate change. When in fact, you know, we take Stanley Park. This is not yeah. an issue about climate change, right? It's not climate change. That that circular route has got nothing to do with commuting. It's about people who like to go biking, and that's fine. Have that discussion, but don't evoke climate change as the reason why you want to do something because okay. it's not true. Okay, let me play this for you, Andrew. Speaking of the Stanley Park bike lane, and in this report here from Global News, you'll hear the voices of a couple of Park Board Commissioners, Vancouver Park Board, John Irwin, who supports uh, the bike lane, John Cooper, who is, uh, was opposed to it. And listen closely here to what John Irwin argue, argues here, because he, he argues in favor of the bike lane for precisely the reason you just outlined. He says this is about climate change. So let's have a listen. For me, a big part of this is um, we, we are in this uh, climate crisis. Car-free park! But critics say last year's experiment often created congestion with cars, larger vehicles, and horse-drawn carriages, all sharing the only other lane. Having cars backed up in the park, having to exit only out of one exit on Georgia Street, idling uh, continuously, uh, that doesn't seem like a very good uh, solution to me. Okay, so Andrew Weaver, if you put in a bike lane and you end up causing a lot of traffic jams and backups and idling cars, I mean, it sounds like maybe you're hurting the environment there, but your thoughts? Well, in the Stanley Park case, it makes absolutely zero sense to suggest somehow that putting in a, uh, you know, slowing traffic down is for climate change. It's, it's simply not the case. It's about providing uh, a, a safer place for bikes to ride. Fine, that's a good argument. But you, what you're doing is you're undermining the good work of hundreds, if not thousands of people before you who have been trying desperately to try to get broader society to recognize the importance of reducing greenhouse gas emissions. And when you right. start tying that to issues that are irrelevant to, the, to this in the bigger picture, you don't actually help the case. Okay, and, uh, so, you know, so you're saying like when, when, the, when the bike lane cult, as you put it, uh, when they invoke their arguments here, uh, anger the public... Uh, like in the in the Stanley Park case, we've got local businesses upset. We've got people with disabilities upset. I mean, the Park Board's own advisory committee on on people with disabilities was opposed to this. They did it anyway because they say it reduces their access to the park. When you ram this stuff through over public mm -hmm. objections like this, you're arguing that you actually set back your own cause. It's exactly right. the point I'm trying to make, and it and it's most unfortunate. You know, uh, there, I mean, some people don't like what what uh, the former mayor uh, uh, did, Gregor Robertson did in Vancouver with bike lanes. Uh, I, I would argue that, in fact, it was a, a process that sh surely, you know, there's probably lessons learned, but at least there was an attempt at with when that was going forward to actually deal with with not even lanes, but separated bikeways and proper integrated active transportation that reflects that it's not one or the other. It's about all of us getting from A to B together in the 
things in ways that we can actually uh, use. Right. Like not everyone, I, I, you know, my, my father, who's 88, is not going to get on a bike. My mother-in-law just had a stroke. She's not going to get on a bike. I mean, it's, it's not reasonable to, to think everybody is uh, able to do, you know, uh, and, and to take away the opportunities for elderly, for, for those with disabilities or special abilities to actually enjoy Stanley Park, or in our case, to, to get from A to B in Victoria, uh, with under the guise that you're actually uh, reducing emissions, which you're not. It's just, it's not, it's not helpful. And I, I, I wish that this is Elitary, which is which is what is often exemplified, which which is uh, you know you it's you, you have a you have a desire to create a car free world, which is that that's your opinion. Fine, don't try to hijack other people's views about the importance for reduce their greenhouse gas emissions by your right. particular agenda. And okay. I've seen this in so many areas with climate change. Okay, speaking to former BC Green Party leader Andrew Weaver, Andrew, your your thoughts on this have got a, a lot of people upset among the, in the cycling community. People who support these bike line, lanes, they're they're angry at you. I mean, you know, you even look over at the park board in Vancouver that put this bike lane in. That was supported by the Green Party of Vancouver. The Green Party commissioners on that park board supported that bike lane. So, what do you think about? I know you're hearing this from people, especially people who are in the Green Party, saying like, "You're stabbing us in the back." here what are you doing like you're a former green party leader and you're criticizing bike lanes like you're you're betraying us how do you respond to that so, well I, first of all i have i'm nonpartisan now and i've never i've always been and i've one of the reasons why we were successful as a beach the green party is we were focused on solutions if there's a problem what's the solutions not ideology uh you know i am i, I am probably one of the strongest proponents of properly integrated active transportation and you can see that on my former MLA site but when you, uh, you but just because you uh, bike lane does not mean it's right that's the problem yeah. that I, I have here is that it's it's yes integrated active transportation critical but you know you can make mistakes you can do things that are not right but you have to listen if you're not able to bring the people that you're trying to change with you the change that you instill will only be temporary because what will happen as we've seen this in bc politics for literally 100 years is that you'll get voted out the next batch will get in and they'll undo the work that you have done so you know calmer heads and and less ideological approach to policy formulation is precisely what the most people in british columbia want uh to, Despite the fact that some of the loudest people in this, uh, you know, this cult, I like to call them. Who All right. Welcome back to the show. My guest is former B.C. Green Party leader Andrew Weaver. We're talking bike lanes and cycling. 604-280-9898, star 9898 in your cell. Jerry in Vancouver. Hey, Jerry. Good morning. Thank you for having me. Sure. Go ahead. Uh, my name is Jerry O'Neill. We operate a small business in Stanley Park for the last uh, 39 years. So I just wanted to clear my, my conflict uh, of interest right away. We operate the Stanley Park Horse Drawing Tours. Obviously, the bike lane has been affecting us hugely negatively, particularly for safety issues that we brought up to the Parks Board. However, aside of that, first and foremost, I want to thank uh, Mr. Weaver very much for standing up and for expressing as usual, is extremely well thought, uh, educated um, thoughts that he has. Um, how much? How much think, is your biz, How much has your business gone down as a result of the bike lane? Last year, well, you know, we ought to be we ought to be truthful. It, it was the bike lane, but it was COVID and many other reasons. But the bike lane usually 
But on the overall last year, we went down 95%. Whoa, okay. Nine, okay, thank you for the call. Andrew Weaver, what do you say to him? Well, I mean, Sandy Park is iconic in Vancouver. It is like world-class park. With access, it should be accessible to everybody, and I guess this is the problem: is that you know, it's 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 there's lots of room to have biking. There's lots of room to have people walking. There's lots of room to have sensible transportation with cars. And the the circle route, of course, is not a commuter route. It's essentially there for recreational activities by and large. Obviously, if we're talking about the connector to the Lionsgate Bridge, it's a different story. That is indeed a commuter route. Yeah. But uh, so I, I feel sympathy for, for, for people who've invested uh, uh, based on a, a system that's in place. And I understand that change is different. But that you can institute, you can bring change if you bring people with you. And in the case yeah. of uh, uh, Stanley Park, uh, you know, I, I think the, the park board behooves them to listen to the concerns of those who are most effective. Okay, they can let's be the strongest advocates yeah. if you actually bring them with you, as let's opposed to, to alienate them. Let's go to Maureen on the line and calling from Surrey. Hi, Maureen. Hi. I Hi. certainly agree with the last two people's comments, and you know, you could just go on and on about how we. My word is ridiculous. It's ridiculous, and they've made it ugly. I tried it last summer, and I'd never go back. Okay, Maureen, thanks for the call. Let's uh, squeeze some more calls in here. Victor calling from the West End. Hey, Victor. Hi, Mike and Andrew. Hi. Listen, I totally agree with Andrew. Uh, my case, uh, I'm right down near English Bay, and uh, they've hijacked uh, Beach Avenue uh, in a way because it's only one way now, and you can't get into the West End or into the park through there. And also, they've kind of hijacked the uh, route from the West End trying to get with your car to try and get into the West End from Stanley Park. It's not possible now. They okay. originally said it was temporary. Now all their signs are saying that after public consultation, I don't know who they consulted with, but uh, it's blocked off. Okay. You can't get back into the West End from the park anymore. So um, Okay. Thank you, Vic. Thank you, Victor, for the call. 604-280-9898 is the number to call. Star 9898 on your cell. Uh, Andrew Weaver, like, are you saying that you're saying you're not against bike lanes, obviously, in principle, but you're saying that the question is how they are sighted and how they are designed and where they go, right? Uh, correct. And uh, I mean, yeah. a lot of people point to to European cities as examples of success. And, and I agree, there's a lot of success. But you have to be careful with making the direct comparison. Uh, European cities, most of them were built hundreds upon hundreds of years ago, very high density downtown cores, narrow streets, quite a different situation from the North America city, as I'm telling, you know, the sustainability planners, all that they, they know, where, where we had the notion of uh, suburbs and commuting between suburbs and downtown workplaces. This, these are different uh, uh, base cases, lines from which you're working. So, you know, you just, you, you, it's important to, I mean, active transportation is critical. There's no doubt about that. But again, yeah. it's also critical that you bring people with you. Let's, and that is, uh, in many cases, not happening. In some cases, it is. Let's go to Janice on the line in Victoria. Hi, Janice. Hi, I, I first want to echo thank you for bring, bringing some sanity to this conversation because living in Victoria, it's been really frustrating uh, to have the discourse around bike lanes and it's always us versus them and we yeah. need to bring everyone together. And what they're planning on Richardson is going to make a mess. It's, it's going to be Vancouver Street again. It's really going to be harmful uh, in terms of transportation for the region. And it's been done in ways that are just awful and should be called out on. So I, I want to thank Andrew for standing up to 
our, our mayor and council here and asking for some rationality on this because it really doesn't make any sense at all. Okay, Janice, thank you very much for the call. Okay, Andrew, you're getting a lot of support here. Would, would you say, though, at the, at the end of the day, like if you're saying that you need some sort of broad consensus here on where to put in a bike lane, is that even achievable? Because at some point, if a bike lane is going into your neighborhood, it's effect- affecting your commute, it's affecting your business, I mean, somebody somewhere is going to complain, right? Like, so you can't, is it even possible to get 100% consensus on it? We've got a minute left here. Oh, oh. Oh, absolutely. I mean, not 100%, but of course, but you have to listen to very serious concerns. Uh, the caller just brought up Richardson. Uh, this, uh, the irony here is it's not even about a bike lane there. Essentially, what's being done is they're closing an intersection with the notion of traffic calming. No modeling's being done. It's just the, they're assuming that this means less, fewer people will drive the car. Well, it's just not possible because there aren't alternate ways downtown, and so those few those people okay. will move along fair, Fairfield. But okay. so the answer is yes. And look at where I live; we have bike lanes. Our our municipal council brought them in with support. You know, right in my backyard, there were not complaints because it was done so in a manner that recognized that there are a diversity of people with a diversity of needs, and you need to actually not have a my way or the highway approach. You must bring people with you. Andrew Weaver, you got everybody talking on this one today. I appreciate your time. Thank you for coming on. Thank you so much, Mike. All right, welcome back to the show. Let's talk about rental scams on the rise in Metro Vancouver right now. Such a tough rental market out there. Lots of people looking for a place to rent. And it's a jungle out there for sure. When you go online trying to find a suite or an apartment, yeah, it can be tough. Now, a lot of those listings you see, sometimes you might think, oh, and this sounds awesome. Look at this place. Looks great. I like the rent. Turns out to be a scam. This is getting more and more common. Have a listen to this now. You're going to hear the voice here of Olivia Mancino, an investigator with the Better Business Bureau here on rental scams. Have a listen. Rental scams. They are everywhere. In fact, according to Apartment List, 43% of shoppers say they've encountered a bogus listing either on Facebook Marketplace or Craigslist. They pretty much look like any other listing. There's photos, contact information, and a price, usually one that's too good to be true. That's typically the only indicator you're running into a scam because the fraudsters behind the listing frequently rip the photos from legit real estate agents and websites. Okay, that's a Better Business Bureau there uh, message for you about rental scams on the rise here. Now, it was interesting to hear her talk about uh, the percentage of people who have been uh, come across these rental scams online. The actual percentage in Vancouver is even higher than that, according to some recent surveys. Let's discuss now with my guest, Carla Laird, Manager of Community and Public Relations for the Better Business Bureau, and I'm pleased to welcome her back. Hiya, Carla. Hey, thanks for having me, and hello to your listeners. Hello to you. It's always awesome to have you here. Carla, is uh, rental scams in Metro Vancouver, do you hear about this a lot? Yeah, actually. There's never actually a a month that passes where we look through a BBB scam tracker and someone has not reported about a rental scam that they've encountered, like you just heard on the clip, either on Facebook Marketplace or on Craigslist. And it's pretty much the same. The price looks great. The, the, The pictures look fabulous. You think you're getting a dream rental and it turns out to be a case where either the property doesn't exist or it doesn't exist in your area or it's not even being rented at all. Yeah, I mean, I've heard about some people doing a, a like a bait and switch. I, I remember talking to a friend of mine who was looking to rent a place and he looked at a place online. Place looked awesome, beautiful photographs, went to look at it and it was nothing like what the photos look like. 
you know, you know, I mean, that's that's a pretty that's like a little bait and switch scam. But some of these scams are more a lot more devious than that. Right. Yes, absolutely. So yeah. the bait and switch is definitely one of them where you get these fabulous photos. You go there and you're like, wow, this is is this the same place? <laughs> you're yeah, even looking yeah. back at the address because you're not even sure what you looked at is matching up with what you're seeing. So that's definitely one of them for sure. And that one is a, is a con unto itself, but it's not so bad when you compare it to instances where someone is actually selling their property. And so it's vacant. Scammers might actually walk through pretending to be interested in purchasing it, take pictures and then post oh. it and say that it's their property that they're renting. Or it's also a case where they see the property being re- um, listed on, a, on legitimate real estate websites, take all of that information, all of the stats, post it on websites that they've created and divert the tra- traffic to their website where they can take advantage of people. Oh, man. And so how would that scam work? I guess they're probably looking for, they want you to give them a deposit on the place or something. Absolutely. So the aim is to get money from you at at the end of it. So, you know, they might even send you some forms telling you that you need to fill out these things. So they want the process to look as authentic as possible. But at the end of the day, some of the, the key red flags you want to look out for are, for instance, the cost for this rental and even the way that they're asking you to make your first payment or your first month's deposit, send us an e-transfer or you can go <laughs> to a Bitcoin machine to make that payment, that kind of thing. Oh, man, run away. Run away when they tell you to go to the Bitcoin machine. Oh, my God. That is the best. That is literally the best tip. If you hear Bitcoin as a form of payment, run away. Run as fast as you can. What about the um, out-of-town landlord? I I had someone describe this one to me once that looking for a place to rent in Vancouver, found a place online, sounded great. Uh, The landlord, though, oh, the landlord's out of town for a few weeks, so... You know, not able to meet you in person, but, you know, just send me the deposit, though, right? Like, send me the deposit and we're all good. But when you hear that the landlord can't show you the place, I mean, that's got to be a red flag. For sure, without a doubt, because at the end of the day, think about it from your end. You're about to spend a couple hundred dollars, if not into the thousands, depending on what you're looking for, to get a place that's comfortable, that's convenient for you, that fits in your budget, all of that. You want to make sure it's worth the money that you're about to spend. So whatever it is, you want to make sure you've done a viewing, you've seen it in person. And we are seeing, as you mentioned earlier, the real estate market is crazy hot right now. And so with all of that going on, viewings are actually still taking place with COVID-19 protocols in place. So don't settle for, oh, you, you know, I can't let you see the property. That in itself means you should probably look somewhere else. Okay, what about some of the photos that are included in some of these online listings? Like you mentioned, sometimes they look they look beautiful, right? Like the place looks awesome. Um and then you find out that these are fake photos that maybe they've they've ripped off another website or something. Someone told me that a, a good way to protect yourself on that is to use the Google reverse, reverse image, image search. Yeah, yes. how does how does that work? How does that work? So- Basically, you would go to your Google or your your web browser and type in literally reverse image search and a toolbar or a search bar will pop up that allows you to either upload the picture that you're trying to investigate or you can copy a link to that picture itself so that you can see if it's popping up anywhere else. 
So the aim of the reverse image search is to see where else has this image been used. So if it's an authentic photo that's been posted by, for instance, a realtor, it's very unlikely that you're going to see that, that same image being pop, um, popping up for a, a place available in California if the guy is saying that this property is located in British Columbia. So if you're seeing where your photos are popping up in other cities or connected with other listings that don't make sense based on where the property is located or supposed to be located, that's a huge red flag. And that's, oh, that yeah. particular reverse image search, you can use it for not just houses, but puppy scams, any other mm. kind of images that you need to investigate. Use it to help to make sure you're making that right decision when it comes to spending your money. Right. So like a puppy scam, like you mentioned, and so many people have gotten pets, new pets during the pandemic. Uh, and so, you know, I think we got record sales of, of puppies these days. So that's another one where the scammers are just having a field day, right? Like you, you got a picture of a beautiful, cute little puppy, and then you find out that's a total scam. So that's another one where you could use that reverse Google image. Absolutely. So yeah. you just literally take a, take that picture, put it in your Google image reverse search, do that research, and it'll show you. And in most cases where it is a puppy scam, you're going to be seeing that same image popping up for an ad in Calgary, popping up for an ad in Winnipeg, popping up for an ad in, in Vancouver. Once you see it in multiple cities, you know something is wrong. Right. I know a few, a few friends of mine have been scammed or they've been targeted by these rental scams in, in the past year or so. And uh, one tip that I heard for your, for your thoughts, Carla, let's say you connect with a landlord. Maybe you've got a verbal agreement to, to rent a place. Someone told me, well, after you have an agreement in principle to rent a place, maybe get a, your friend a day or two later to phone the landlord and ask if the property is, is still available. And if the landlord turns around and says, yeah, sure, it's still available, let's talk, well, then obviously you know it's a scam if they've already agreed to rent it to you. Do you think that's a, I don't know, is that a good way to protect yourself? Yeah, it is actually, because yeah. you want to verify that this landlord is who they say they are. So some right. people might go even further and do a research on the property itself to see who owns the property if they can. Um, there are other people that will say, hey, I will, I'm not physically in the city where the rental is, but I know someone who is. Can you go and check this property for me to see if it's where it says it is, if it looks like how they've actually advertised it? Make sure someone is there to actually double check for you. And if you're if you're in a position where you can get someone to double check the listing or even just follow up and do some more investigative work for you or assist you in your own investigative work, I definitely second that 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 idea because at the end of the yeah. day you're thinking about it's your money, it's your time and you don't want to waste or lose either. Yeah. Where are most of these scams taking place? Like, you know, I know a lot of people look at Craigslist. Is Craigslist still a, still a thing? Like people go on Craigslist to look at places Absolutely. to rent? Absolutely. Yeah. yeah, they do, for sure. It's, it's one of those go-to places for rentals. And we're actually seeing an increase um, in those kinds of rentals on Facebook Marketplace as well. Mm. I mean, at the end of the day, we have to take into consideration that these are legitimate sites where people can go and will possibly even find um, good referrals or good rentals or trustworthy people trying to get their places rented for real. So there are authentic people there. But at the same time, scammers know this. So that's why they will take advantage of the same platforms and try to post fake listings or fake rentals, hoping that you will you know, fall for it. 
So they'll watch the marketplace. They watch every single thing that we're interested in. If there's a demand for masks, they capitalize on it. There's a demand yeah. for puppies. They do the same thing. There's a demand for rentals. They're going to tap into that as well. Hey, welcome back to the show. My guest is Carla Laird from the Better Business Bureau. We're talking about rental scams on the rise in Metro Vancouver. 604-280-9898 is the number. Star 9898 on your cell. Jeff in Vancouver. Hi, Jeff. Hi, Mike. Uh, I helped a couple of friends uh, just under two years ago. They were uh, in a different part of the province. They uh, wanted to move to Vancouver, where I live. They asked me to go to a specific neighborhood and uh, see if I could find a suite for them. And I did it the old-fashioned way, just walking up and down or driving up and down the streets looking for the uh, signs uh, posted uh, on the front lawn of a building. And that way, uh, you're able to dial a number. I was able to dial numbers and often meet the uh, building caretaker right away. In some cases, they let me in right away. So I could see the suite. Other times you make an appointment. But uh, old-fashioned way, driving up and down the streets. Okay, Jeff, thank you for that. Well, Carla, I guess, you know, if people have the opportunity to do that, I guess that's one way to protect yourself. But, you know, let's face it, most people are going online these days. Yeah, absolutely. But, you know, like you said, the old-fashioned way doesn't really hurt because you get to see yeah. the, the property and you get to speak to the person who's managing or owning the property. So it does cover some of those bases that would literally be left exposed if it was being online right. or you hope relying on what you're seeing from an ad. Yeah. Let's go to Amen in Richmond. Hi. Amen. Hello? Yeah, go ahead. Hi, Mike. I just wanted to say that uh, I'm a landlord and a lot of emphasis is always being put on to the tenants, but what I have found on numerous occasions where I do get into verbal agreements with with tenants to come and sign the lease agreement with me, but they never show up. And in the meantime, I've taken my listing off and it could be off for, you know, 12 hours or almost a day. And I have potentially lose uh, potential good tenants because the tenant doesn't show up to sign a lease agreement. How often has that happened to you? Uh, that has happened probably four times in the last two years because okay. people are still shopping around. I figure, you know, if they want to rent my place, they're looking at multiple places, and then they still may have other places that they want to see. They may want to have something secure, uh, but in the meantime, they're looking for something else, and uh, they may sign another lease agreement somewhere else where, where it's more prefer yeah. pre preferential for them, and they don't show up. Yeah, well, I can I can understand how that would be frustrating. Thank you for that. 604-280-9898 is the number. Star 9898 on your cell. Bruce in Vancouver. Hey, Bruce. Hi, um, oh yeah, Mike. I'm, I'm calling because I'm sort of mad at Craigslist. There's this one ad that's so easy to pick out. It's all over BC, Las Vegas, you name it. And it's like the too good to be true uh, type of ad. And it always says, uh, dogs welcome wolf. Yeah. Cats welcome, welcome purse. And it's so obvious. And yeah, it's like an obvious scam. Yeah, and Craigslist doesn't do anything about it. Now, no, that's an interesting point. Thank you for that. Um, that's another one that I heard, Carla, is if the, if the place sounds too good to be true, I mean, it's the old rule of thumb. If it, if it sounds too good to be true, it probably is too good to be true, especially like dogs and cats are welcome. You know, it's probably always in there if it's a, if it's a fake listing. But your thoughts? 
Yeah, they, you know, it's one of the things. The, the thing with these ads, they try to make them be um, seem perfect. So all the yeah. things you would possibly want to make yourself comfortable. And we know that there have, there have been several instances where people complain that they can't find properties that allow them to keep their pets with them for various reasons or even places where you're allowed to smoke. You're seeing, you know, yeah. smoking allowed, yeah. pets allowed, all the different things that would con- would be a turn off for some um, renters or for some um, owners, you get to see that available and, a, and, a, and at a great price. It's, sure. it's too good to be true. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's too good to be Pat in White Rock. Pat, we just got a minute left here. Go ahead. Okay, quick one. I used the trick of asking the neighbors, and I discovered when I was in the process of purchasing a house, the neighbor came out and told me that the house had previously been a grow-up, the uh-huh. realtor wasn't uh, relaying that information to me. Apparently, there's a timeline that they can squeak under. So if it hadn't mm. been for the neighbor helping me out, I might have got sucked in. Okay, Pat, thanks for that. Well, is there any obligate 30 seconds left here, Carla, is there any obligation on a seller to disclose if there's a grow-up in the home? Well, no? the thing is, you know, if you do owe it to your, your tenant to be as transparent as possible. And so it would help to make that process as smooth because the last thing you want to do is to find things out that would have made you um, consider another place or even just not go there at all. Carla, thank you for the great work you do there at the Better Business Bureau and thank you for coming on today. Thanks for having me. All right, welcome back to the show. Let's talk about COVID-19, giving a body check to the NHL here now. If you're a Habs fan or an Oilers fan, well, first of all, you have my sympathies, but then you must have also been pretty bored last night. The game in Montreal was postponed because of COVID-19 concerns. And as our show contributor, John Jang, explains now, that's the wrong kind of history to make. John. Hey, good morning, Mike. When it rains, it pours. And minutes after Dr. Bonnie Henry confirmed that British Columbia was indeed in its third wave of this pandemic yesterday, On the other side of the country, the wrong kind of history was made. For the first time in the NHL this season, a Canadian matchup between Montreal and Edmonton had to be postponed because two players on the Montreal roster were late additions to the NHL's COVID protocol list. Those players are Jesperi Kotkaniemi and Yoel Armia, both forwards who actually played against the Vancouver Canucks over the weekend on Saturday night. Once news broke that this game on Monday would be postponed, and that determination came through at approximately 3.29 p.m. Pacific time, it was determined that the Canucks had already cleared COVID-19 protocols and were able to proceed with their game against the Winnipeg Jets on Monday night. More on that game in just a moment. But as mentioned, this was the first game in the all-new North Division that has been postponed this season. Overall, the NHL has seen 43 games being postponed, with 38 of those due to COVID-19 concerns this year. Both Kokaniemi and Armia participated in their team's morning skate on Monday before the news came down. But once the team learned of their COVID-19 situation, the Canadians announced they would also close their practice facility on Tuesday, this morning, with all players and staff undergoing further testing. It's not yet clear when the Oilers and the Habs will make up this postponed game, but it will not be happening today as the league must wait for those test results. And just to be clear, not a single player on the Edmonton Oilers were in addition to the COVID-19 protocol list. Now, interestingly enough, over the past weekend, it was also announced that the Montreal Canadiens submitted a proposal to Quebec Public Health, detailing a plan that would eventually see fans returning to home games at the Bell Centre. 
not at full capacity, but anywhere from two to 4,000 fans every home game moving forward. Ultimately, the game being postponed on Monday night could have little impact on this proposal, but one insider did confirm that the Quebec government would have final say on this matter. And in case you're wondering, Quebec announced 656 new cases of COVID-19 in the past 24 hours and four new deaths. Back here on the West Coast, as mentioned, the Vancouver Canucks cleared their COVID-19 testing yesterday with zero positive cases, but they've got an entirely different problem on their hands. During Monday night's loss to the Winnipeg Jets, the Canucks lost Captain Bo Horvat when he took an Alex Edler slap shot off of his left foot. Horvat immediately left the game, unable to put any weight on his left foot as he tried to make his way off the ice. He was ruled out of the game shortly after, which is never a good sign on a player's long-term outlook. The team has not shared his status as of yet this morning, but here is Travis Green post-game when asked about his captain on Monday night. Do you have an update on Bo Horvat? No. Travis, do you have an update on Brandon Sutter? No. Short and sweet but to the point and quite effective. Now, it's worth noting that Bo Horvat, Brandon Sutter, Jay Beagle, and Elias Pettersson are all out with various injuries, meaning the Canucks are down their four starting centers. It's enough to say that the Canucks' playoff chances could be cooked, as it looked like an uphill battle even if the team was mostly healthy. But they will have at least 24 hours to get prepared for a rematch against those Winnipeg Jets. That game is tomorrow night at Rogers Arena, Puck drops at 7.30. Back to you, Mike. All right, John, thank you for that report. John Jang joins me now. Okay, John, that's disappointing seeing a, a game canceled because of COVID-19. Are there fears that this could uh, get worse or spread? Yeah, I think there is uh, some tentative fears. Now, as we know, the Vancouver Canucks did not have a single player test positive with COVID-19. But given the situation with the Montreal Canadiens, uh, I'm sure that a lot of the other teams in the NHL, specifically those Canadian teams, are being extra careful and uh, trying to make sure that they're testing everybody involved. And it's not just players. It's not just coaches. It's equipment managers. It's fitness staff. It's everybody involved with the day-to-day routines of these teams. Because all it takes is one to compromise, of course, the uh, the safety of that right. bubble. Right. And what is the status now of NHL games and fans actually in the stands for the games? What's going on there? Yeah, so we heard the Canadians applied this proposal with Quebec Public Health. Uh, it hasn't been decided on just yet, but Montreal is not alone. In fact, the Edmonton Oilers, the Toronto Maple Leafs, your Maple Leafs, Mike, and the Ottawa Senators. Oh, you had, you had have... to out me. You had to out me as a Leafs fan. There. Oh, no. That's right, I did. Uh, but uh, the Ottawa Senators, the Leafs, and the Oilers are three other teams in the Canadian division that have also applied similarly to get fans into the stands. Uh, the Vancouver Canucks so far have not made an official proposal with Dr. Bonnie Henry and her team but i think there could be a discussion some point down the road if for example we see more than 10 percent of the province's population being given the vaccine okay so yeah so that would be up for for vancouver that would be up to bonnie henry i guess to decide Absolutely. Yeah, Yeah. I think all of the provincial health authorities will have the final say, uh, simply because this is more than just sports. It's now becoming uh, a situation where fans could potentially bring it back to their homes or bring it back to their communities and certainly to their workplaces. Who knows? And that's a worst case scenario. Okay, in the uh, the piece that you just we just played there, John, you you, we heard from some of the uh, coaches there for the Canucks being asked about 
uh, injury status and giving just very brief one word answers are that's kind of is that kind of normal operating procedure like I know coaches don't like to disclose like uh, injuries yeah generally speaking they try to keep their cards close to the vest yeah. but in times where a player has a promising update Travis Green is pretty honest if there's good news he will share yeah. a little bit of good news the fact that it's a blunt no has yeah. me feeling a little pessimistic at least about Bo Horvat's long-term outlook again he was the player that recently got hurt last night um now, look, there are some online doctors, armchair doctors, if you will, who went over the instant replay of that particular injury and uh, deduced using internet detective skills that Bo Horvat had sustained like a broken foot, a broken oh. ankle. We're not sure if, as of the official word just yet, but if that is the case, Mike, we could be looking at uh, Bo Horvat out for the season and a question mark because the Canucks might not even make the playoff picture. Uh, wow. Elsewhere, Elias Pettersson, the team's best player, he hasn't played in close to a month, and he's still at least a week or two away considering that he's on the long-term injured reserve list. So it's still a lot of question marks. Okay, that's a tough spot for the Canucks there. That's kind of a bit of a freak injury to take a slap shot off your skate and, and suffer a bad injury like that. Like I've seen, you know, that's pretty common. I've seen seen guys take, take shots off their, off their ankles and stuff, and they just skate it off. Yeah, I mean, it's part of um, playing tough, as Don Cherry yeah. might say back in the day. You got to pay the price, especially if you were in front of the net, in front of the goaltender, just like Bo Horvat was. That's yeah. kind of like no man's land, right? Where you know there's always a chance you're going to take a teammate's puck uh, from a shot like that. But yeah. at the same time, you're trying to screen the goaltender. You're trying to get those ugly rebounds, pot in an ugly goal. Uh, Bo Horvat does all the right things. He's an exceptional hockey player, and the fact that yeah. he goes down like this, it's a heavy blow on a team that usually follows his example. Right. Well, hopefully he's back soon because they, they sure need him. Like Overall, though, for the NHL right now, looking at this strange season that we got going on, is the league in a good position here to finish off the, the year and have a full playoffs? I'd say it's about 70% that it looks really? like they're going to do it. Uh, we know that these numbers have been jumping more radically in the United States. So, yeah. for example, there's been 43 games postponed this season, including the one we saw last night between Montreal and Edmonton. 37 of those have been COVID-19 related in the United States, just one in Canada. So for the most part, the North Division has worked out really well. It's teams south of the border that you have to be a little bit more careful about. But if you're asking me on this spot right now, will we have a playoff season? I think we will. And I think the NHL has done a pretty impressive job overall when you consider some of the failures that we saw in the NFL with constant scheduling changes, constant games being postponed, etc. So I'd say I, I, I feel fairly confident that we will get to finish the season. Okay, I haven't taken an updated look at the standings in, in a little while, but you know, where are the Canucks right now? Are they in a playoff position or no? Uh, after last night's loss, unfortunately, they again find themselves just short of 500, but yeah. we knew that they were going to be an up, uh, facing an uphill battle regardless. It's just now with all these injuries and possibly losing Bo Horvat for a long period of time, I don't have my hopes okay. up that this team, uh, the, the Canucks at least, will be a postseason oh, contender. Boy. 